Hey guys, welcome to episode 12 of A Tap on the Wrist. I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. We've, oh. ne- we've never done it that way. I know. It feels weird. <laughs> I, almost, I legitimately almost just stopped the recording because I was like, wait, that was wrong. But I guess nothing's wrong. We could do whatever we want. It's our podcast. <laughs> we can do what we want. So before we get into this week's episode, I just want to do a quick correction. Um, I... Last week kept saying Freeman Street, and in New Orleans was like the like more grown up version of Bourbon Street, but it's actually Frenchman Street, which makes so much sense, so much more <laughs> sense. But I realized what I did was I was thinking of Frenchman Street, but I also sort of was thinking of Fremont Street in Vegas, uh, and I combined the two names. Yes, because they're both like kind of like party cities, and I just yeah. I messed up. I'm sorry, people of New Orleans that were probably not listening, but one one day if they do, they'll Mm -hmm. yell at me and be like, it's a Frenchman. Also, (laughs) that person that texted us and called us out. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know who you are. Also, I don't hate New Orleans, by the way, people. I just don't like it very much. And I don't even dislike it. I only went once and would like to go back, but... Apparently, it sounded like we were really anti-New Orleans, and we're not. I know they have a very cultured and varied history, and I'm sure the people that live there love it. I just don't like Bourbon Street, but I also, like, hate Times Square in New York, so, like, that's me calling out my own city. Right. I guess, for me, it's more of a... So, I don't hate it, but I don't actively want to go back. I think you've been there four times, and you travel a lot, so I feel like you wouldn't necessarily want to go back to the same place regardless of what you thought you know yeah um anyway this week's episode is about something different yes it is about absinthe oh you you didn't know that (laughs) i did i (laughs) so in my head i thought you were getting ready to introduce because we we are recording an episode about something else. So, <laughs> in my head, I thought you were about to introduce... That future episode. That future episode. And I was, I had like a quip ready to go. And so when you said absinthe, it really threw me off. <laughs> but yes, our theme this week is absinthe, which is... Whoa, what are we going to say? <laughs> I was going to say it's interesting. Yeah, no, it's a... Uh... It's an interesting lic- liqueur. Yes. Um, it has definitely some interesting history based on my research. It's like very controversial. Or it was. Maybe not so much anymore, but yeah. it was like a controversial. Well, and I think it's got that like, ooh, absent. It's like fancy, naughty. Bad, yeah. Yeah. Naughty. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But yes. It's that is that is what our episode is about this week, and I I definitely have something that eh, doesn't really prove that it's naughty, but it like goes along with that yeah. that feel. Yeah. So uh, let's get into that, I guess. Unless you have anything else to say, oh, we should probably say that you should follow us on social media. <laughs> so I think we should just <laughs> pre-record this segment and just add it into every because <laughs> we always forget. <laughs> Yes. Uh, Yeah, follow us on social media. We're going to have pictures up that go with this absinthe episode. You can find us on Instagram or Twitter at a tap on the wrist. Yep, and you can shoot us an email if you want. 
tapontheriskpodcast at gmail.com. And you should also rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast because that helps us get noticed and get more ears on our podcast. I almost said eyes, mm-hmm. and then I was like, that's not right. Well, I mean, eyes, yeah. They, they can they, look on our social media and see our, right. our things. Yeah. So do all that and uh, get ready for some wild absence stories. They're pretty wild. Yeah. My story today is about the absinthe murders. Murder? Murder. <laughs> so it's a little bit fucked up. <laughs> I mean, right it's, about, it's about murder. <laughs> but it's basically what led to the nearly century-long ban on absinthe. So I thought it was important when talking about absinthe and kind of just an interesting piece of history. So just... I mean, for anyone who doesn't know what absinthe is, it according to Wikipedia, it's historically described as a distilled, highly alcoholic beverage and has between 45 to 74% ABV or 90 to 148 US proof. And it's often described as, quote, a dangerously addictive psychoactive drug and, hallu- and hallucin- hallucinogen. Hallucinogen? Why can't I speak? Hallucinogenic? No, hallucinogen. Okay. Whatever she said. Yep. So this story starts with a man named Jean Lafray. Lanfray. I'm going to say Jean. Just to be. (laughs) Just to be French. Just to be French. It could be Jean. I don't know. Or Jean. Could it be Jean? It's like John, isn't it? But the French John. Sure. Whatever. Say it how you want to. (laughs) He's not alive. And he's, he was from a place called Communi, Switzerland. That's how I'm going with how you say that place. Sorry if anyone is from there. No one from Switzerland listens to the podcast based <laughs> you, on the analytics. You don't know. The analytics tell me no one from Switzerland is listening. <laughs> or they live somewhere else now. Okay. <laughs> so at the time of the murders, uh, which were on August 28th, 1905, Lanfrey was 31 or 32, so our age. <laughs> A laborer and a husband and a father to two children with another baby on the way. Wow. So I'm going to walk you through a little bit of a timeline of events on the day of the murders. Okay. First, Lanfrey woke up and decided to get ready for work with not one, but two shots of absinthe, which were diluted by water, but still, it's, you know. Okay, well, that's how you drink absinthe, (laughs) is with water. But to wake up and just be like, you know what I need? Two shots. <laughs> it's a pretty hardcore guy. Yeah. So after that, he headed out to work on a vineyard. And on his way there, he stopped at a cafe with his brother and father. And there he had a liquid breakfast of creme de meth and con- cognac. 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 <laughs> I can't speak today, guys. It's been a long day. Um, I, do, do you mix those two things? No, I, I feel like he had them separately. But still, a shot of creme de menthe on its own? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's almost stranger than absinthe in the morning. Like, I mean, this is also in the morning. Well, I know, but just, I don't know anyone that's ever been like, you know what I need? Some creme de menthe. <laughs> without like having chocolate a, syrup. Like, like having <laughs> a shot of, like, triple sec without, yeah. <laughs> without tequila. tequila. Yeah. <sighs> So after he had his nummy creme de meth, <laughs> he continued on to work, and during his lunch break, he decided to drink even more. 
So according to sciencehistory.org, he had six glasses of strong wine. They specifically say it's strong. Okay. And then he had another seventh glass before he left work for the day. Wow, he's this is this is a full day of drinking. Was he yes. actually working? <laughs> I, I guess he was working on a vineyard, so I guess he was like, "Well, I need to sample the wine." That's crazy. I, yep. So then, on his way home, he decided to stop for some coffee and brandy. Okay. <laughs> so we're up a little, then drink some more. Yep. And then once he was home, he continued to drink wine with his father, and they had a liter of wine between the two of them. I mean, how much is he peeing? Because this is a lot of liquid consumption. It really is. And I'm sure that at this point he was very sloppy because he'd been drinking a lot all day. And all different kinds of alcohol, too. Not even just one kind. That's what really messes you up when you mix all the different... Right. And so his wife obviously was probably not happy about the situation. Well, you said she was pregnant, right? Yes. Yeah, I wouldn't be happy either if my husband came home and I'm, like, pregnant, I'm dealing with two kids, and he's just... Sloshed. Yeah. And keeps drinking with his dad. So I read a couple of different versions of what kind of conspired between the two of them. A couple of sources I read said that she told him he needed to go out and milk the cows, and he refused to do that. She, in turn, called him lazy and... According to sciencehistory.org, again, he told her to shut up, and she responded by saying to make her. A couple of other sources noted that the fight began because she refused to polish his shoes, and he noticed his unpolished boots, and that's how the fight got triggered. So, not 100% sure which one is correct. It could probably be a mix of both things. But, I mean, if he didn't go milk the cows, he was being lazy. So, (laughs) Either way, whatever transpired... Lanfrey upset his wife comments and obviously inebriated at this point, not that that's an excuse, went to the closet, grabbed his rifle, and shot his pregnant wife in the forehead. Oh, wow. That is not what I thought was going to happen. I wasn't sure if he was going to be the murderer or she was going to be the murderer. Nope, it was him. And uh, he... If it really ended the fight by him, her saying to make her shut up, and that's what he did, like, I mean, it's awful either way, but, like, something about that is just, gets to me. Yeah, but his dad is there? So his dad is there, and according to Wikipedia and another source that I'm blanking on right now, he fled as soon as Lanfrey shot his wife. He the went dad? To, yeah, the... What? Yeah. Or the grandfather, whatever. Yeah, and so he he went to the police, which is, like, a good thing, and I'm sure that he was fearing for his life, but that means that he also left Lanfrey with his two daughters. Oh, no. And the body of his dead wife, so this is obviously where things get even more fucked up than shooting his pregnant wife. Rose, Lanfrey's four-and-a-half-year-old daughter, heard the shot and ran into the room to find her mother's dead body. When Lamfrey saw her, he shot her in the chest, killing her as well. Oh, my God. Yep. He then went to the bedroom of his younger daughter, two-year-old Blanche, and shot her while she was sleeping in her crib, killing her. That's terrible. Yes. But his kids' names are Rose and Blanche, like Golden Girls. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't even think about that. It's a terrible connection. 
Because I feel really bad for those two little girls. But I like their names. Yeah, I totally didn't even think about that. Oh, I hope I got their names right. Imagine I was just like watching Golden Girls and I was like, oh man. Okay, sorry. Back to the sad shooting of these two young daughters of his. He, after seeing what he did, decided he was going to kill himself. So he took the rifle and shot himself in the jaw, but it didn't kill him. He just had a bullet lodged in his jaw. So after his failed attempt, he grabbed the body of his dead two-year-old daughter and dragged her with him to the barn where he then passed out. And that's where the police found him holding his dead two-year-old daughter. But he was alive. He was alive. He was just passed out. And back to sciencehistory.org, he was quoted as saying, please tell me I haven't done this. I loved my family and children so much. Yeah, no, you don't get to say that after nope. you do I'd, something terrible like that. I was like, okay, asshole. Like, you don't get to be like, oh, but I loved them. I'm so, I can't and, like, believe it. As terrible as it is, like, it really bothers me that, you know, he is successful when he shoots and kills these other people. And then when he turns the gun to himself, he's not successful. Right. Because he doesn't deserve to live after he's done that, in my opinion. Right. So, even though Lamfrey had mainly drank wine that day and then some other spirits, there was kind of already a crusade against absinthe where he, where he was from in Switzerland. So, the press quickly, like, quickly grabbed onto the fact that he had had absinthe in the morning, even though this was hours after that. And so, they started calling it the absinthe murders. And his defense attorneys also decided to go along with that and ended up saying that the murders were because of absinthe madness and they even had a psychiatrist by the name of albert mahane claim that only because of the absinthe could it have caused the ferociousness of temper and blind rages that made him shoot his wife for nothing and his two poor children whom he loved so, like, nothing else. Just the absinthe is what caused him to shoot that. Yeah, I'm sure he doesn't have a temper and he yeah. wasn't a drunk and all these other... Like, oh, that makes me so mad. Yep. <laughs> but the prosecution, of course, was basically like, yeah, he drank that in the morning. He had a ton of stuff in between. It's probably not what it was, except, you know, in a more, like, lawyerly Did way. Did they have... I mean, is there any evidence anywhere of him being like angry or you know I didn't see anything but I feel like this wouldn't have come out of nowhere I know well that's what makes it that's what almost helps the defense if there is no history of like him having a an anger issue or him Mm -hmm. hurting his wife or his kids and he's just this respectable vineyard worker who loves his family right and then all of a sudden one day takes out a shotgun and kills his whole family you have to think something set him off or something right not that it's the absinthe but Uh i do see how that defense would be used if he does have like this upstanding history right maybe he didn't because it took one day in court and he was found guilty of the murders of four murders because they included the unborn baby well there's no doubt he was guilty yeah but they weren't like temporary insanity 
they were like, yeah, you're a murderer. I mean, I don't know. I really couldn't find anything about any past behavior. So once he was found guilty of the four murders, he was sentenced to 30 years in prison. However, three days into his sentence, he hung and killed. He hanged and killed himself. Hanged? He hung? Hung. Yeah. I was he hung clear. himself. Yes. So because the media and pro- prohibitionist had jumped on the, like, absinthe is why he killed his family wagon, this whole ordeal kind of became the battle cry of why absinthe should be banned. And a petition began, and it was signed by 82,000 people to ban absinthe in Switzerland. And as a result of the petition and the murders, an official ban went into effect in Switzerland in 1910. Many countries followed suit, including the good old United States, which banned absinthe in 1912. And I got this quote from, again, sciencehistory.org, my main source, clearly. The U.S. Pure Food Board imposed a ban calling absinthe, quote, one of the worst enemies of man. And if we keep the people of the United States from becoming slaves to this demon, we will do it. And then by 1915, it was even banned in France, which is the very popular drink in France. And these bans lasted, like I said at the beginning, for close to a century. Rules were a little bit relaxed in the 1990s. And then by 2007, absinthe was once again legal, though there are limitations depending on where you are. And that is the sad and awful story of how absinthe was banned for a long, long time. And my sources were obviously, as I cited, sciencehistory.org. They had an article called The Devil in a Little Green Bottle, A History of Absinthe by Jess Hicks. An article in the Daily News called The Green Fairy Did It, A Drunken Massacre Blamed on Absinthe by Mara Bovson who in turn got a lot of the information from a book called Absinthe History in a Bottle. And of course, good old Wikipedia. Your favorite source. My favorite (laughs) source that I will use every time. That's really interesting. And it's interesting because my story is not about like one specific crime. It's more about the largest absinthe company in Europe. Interesting. Uh But your story plays a big part into their history because of the ban of absinthe. So, like, I'm going to reference, like, the whole end of your story in the middle of my story. Ah, did he drink this absinthe? Most likely. Because it was the biggest. It was the most popular. It, and one of the only at that time. Interesting. But, like, the, was it Lanfrey? Yeah. The Lanfrey murders came up on a lot of my research. And I didn't know if that was what you were doing, but you had briefly said you were doing a murder so I was like I don't want to read about these murders I just want to be the catalyst for what happens yeah. to the company so all right well let's hear what you got to say okay so we're talking about absinthe this week but did you know that absolute Glen Levet, Jameson, Jacobs Creek Wines, Beef Eater Gin, Kahlua and Malibu as well as like 50 other alcohols around the world are all owned by the same company no, I did not know that. <laughs> I did not know that until today either. And in fact, they're all owned by what is the second largest wine and spirits company in the world, which is Pernod Ricard, which is a company that started the very first absinthe distillery in Europe 
way, way, way back in 1805. That's so crazy to me. I definitely thought that all those things were like their own companies. I agree. I mean, and like, how have I never heard of this giant company? I agree. So I've actually heard of this company as a liquor company because they do still sell absinthe and other liqueurs. Okay. But I didn't realize that while they are a liquor name, they also are this giant conglomerate that owns all of these other companies. They just, and we're going to talk about how it gets to that point, but it is the second largest company next to, um, the largest company is another one I've never heard of, but when you look at their liquors, it's like the top spirits in the whole world it's you know crown royal and yeah it's just but there's like a giant conglomerate that owns all these smaller distilleries i know okay so anyways so pernod is one of the most famous uh absinthe brands but it starts all the way back in 17 the 1790s there's a doctor his name is uh, pierre ordinaire and he creates a recipe. I don't know why that sounds like a superhero <laughs> name. Pierre Ordinaire. No, well, he is a superhero. He makes a medicine that can solve everything. Uh, and he does this by combining a bunch of local herbs with wormwood. And he creates this drink that is called absinthe. And it's rumored to cure everything from flatulence to anemia. And it is a bright green color. It is a cure-all. It is a cure-all, just like the coca wine. Yeah. But, uh, so, in his small town, people are hearing about it. There's some conflicting stories where he is on his deathbed, and he gives his recipe to his sisters, and they sell it away. Others say Dr. Ordinaire gives the recipe away. But, however it happens, in the year 1805, a man by the name of Henri-Louis Pernod has this recipe and he forms a company the Pernod company and he starts with just two tiny stills and he's producing about 16 liters of this absinthe each day and it becomes pretty popular and his business starts to grow he gets his sons involved and year by year the distillery is growing they're adding more to it and in just a few years, they're able to purchase a new plot of land. It's 36,000 square meters of land on the outskirts of, I'm going to pronounce this very wrong, but it's like Pontlier, which is in eastern France right near the Switzerland border. Sounds on, right to me. On the, I believe it's the Du River, even though it's spelled D-O-U-B-S. Okay. And so they build this factory and they are now producing over 400 liters of absinthe every day, which is great. Uh, they're very successful, and at the time, absinthe is becoming the drink to have in France and in Switzerland, like your story referenced. But in 1850, Henri-Louis dies, and his sons take over the factory, and they're still producing, they're now producing like 20,000 liters a day, and are the top liquor company in France at the time. And everyone who knows alcohol knows the Pernod absinthe. Largely in part, it, it gets its popularity because during the 1840s, while French soldiers were away fighting in war, they were given absinthe to help clear their stomach of any ailments and to protect them from malaria. 
So they became kind of addicted to absinthe. They were getting it every day as like a preventative treatment. Damn. While they were fighting. Every day. And so when they came home to France, they like craved it and wanted it. And so they would go and buy it and then share it with their friends. And it just became very popular. And as you mentioned, it's slightly addictive. So people just were buying it, you know, by the leaders. And apparently, what did I say, hallucinogen? (laughs) (laughs) People don't know if that's actually true. I've had absinthe and I didn't hallucinate. Well, so. nowadays, it's made, there's a chemical that you're not allowed to make it with anymore that makes it not hallucinogenic. So, another reason that absinthe is starting to reign supreme over wine is at the time there was an outbreak on vineyards across France and it was a fly that had poisoned a lot of the grapevines and so there wasn't as large of a wine a crop. A fly? It was like a fly that had infected all the vines. I'm thinking about it being one fly. <laughs> yes. Going from <laughs> vine to vine. It is, it is many flies, but it, they're spreading a disease. Okay. And so there was a very, and this was actually a giant outbreak in France. That's probably a, a story for another week. But it's a very low turnout for wine for quite a few years and so absinthe kind of took over okay and becomes super popular and according to absinthe encyclopedia Pernod went on to become one of the largest and most successful companies in France but not only are they the largest company they also did some good for business in France they were a pioneer in the humane and enlightened treatment of its mostly female workers which at the time was kind of unheard of, mm-hmm. right? So their factory is mainly females, and they were they were very good to them. And as early as 1873, they had profit sharing and pensions uh, introduced company-wide, and the company, at its own expense, insured all of its workers against accidents, gave them unemployment compensation, and provided medical benefits. Wow. Yeah, in 1873. Wow, I that's know. crazy. I know. So they were... Not only were they doing really well financially, they were also just good people to work for. Yeah. So, as I've said, absinthe is the go-to drink in France. It becomes so popular that by the 1860s, at 5 o'clock, it was actually called Le Hour. I can't say hour in French, but yeah. it's like Le Hour Vert or the Green Hour. And yeah. everyone, it's kind of like happy hour here today but but, with absinthe but everyone at five o'clock would have an absinthe to start their evening it was said to be like a palate cleanser and the way to start your night off correct Mm -hmm. which i just think is really really interesting and because it's so successful the price gets even lower the more successful it comes becomes so it started off as something only the rich could afford and soon it's something that everyone can afford in every bar and cafe and everyone is drinking it and I feel like today, so I don't know that I've ever properly had like a proper absinthe cocktail, but after doing my research, I want to find a bar in New York that does this because have you ever like had a proper absinthe cocktail? In a cafe in France with like the sugar that yeah. they light on. Yeah, I, I did that once in a cafe in because France. I watched like eight YouTube videos today. I just feel- felt so snobby, by the way. I did a cafe in France. <laughs> own it um but I want to go to a place that uses like the water fountain so Uh typically you serve 
you put the absinthe in a glass. Right. Then there's a special absinthe spoon that is slotted uh-huh. that you put over a tap with a sugar cube, and then you pour ice cold water. Mm-hmm. This is for people who haven't done it in a cafe. In <laughs> um, you pour ice cold water over the sugar cube, and it falls into the absinthe. Right. And absinthe is typically clear. It's either a clear green or a clear. And once you add the cold water, it turns into a milky consistency. So it's either milky white if okay. it was clear, or it's like a lovely mint cloudy green if it was a green absinthe. Mm-hmm. And then... And it's like five parts water to one part absinthe because absinthe is so strong. Right. And so it's actually a lot of water when you're drinking an absinthe cocktail. So it's not, you know, I mean, it's still a high alcohol proof. But So Lanfrey, that piece of crap, knew what he was doing when he had his shots in the Yeah, morning. oh yeah. When you just take a shot of it, you're just a crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1874, France is consuming about 700,000 liters of absinthe. Per year, and in a short 30 years, it explodes to 36 million liters of absinthe per year. So it is very, very popular. And everyone is drinking it. They have lots of nicknames for it, like the Green Fairy. Right. And everyone goes to the Green Hour. And so it's just very popular. But there are lots of critics, especially people who are very happy with the temperance movement Uh and things like that. Uh, your murders take place in 1905, right? Yes, okay. 1905. So right before this, a tragedy actually hits the Pernod factory. And so on Sunday, August 11th of 1901, there is actually a giant thunderstorm in the town. And it is one of the worst thunderstorms the town has seen. And the factory actually gets hit by lightning right on the central dome of the factory. And... Because the alcohol being so high in alcohol proof and such large quantities, when the lightning hits the plant, almost immediately the entire plant goes up in flames. Oh, wow. And there was so much alcohol and the heat was so... Like, everything ran through metal framework and the electrical charges went through everything. It was so hot that all of the glass bottles melted, which... It has to be really hot for all the glass bottles. Yeah. And the factory's on fire. And for days, the factory burns. But at one point, some workers realized that if they opened... They had, like, reservoirs underneath the ground that they were holding absinthe in. If they opened these reservoirs to try and release some of the alcohol, it would cause the flames to slow down. So they did this, but when they released the absinthe they released it into the river bank like into the river so there are many stories of all of this absinthe going into the river and like we just mentioned when it hits water it turns into like a milky cloudy color right so people say that in all of the the towns down the river for days they would just smell this like anise smelling yeah. and like you could taste the absinthe there was so much absinthe in the river if you went and it was like a cloudy color i was really waiting by the way for you to say that it was an absinthe flood and i was like <laughs> we're doing another flood laura <laughs> no <laughs> i mean i guess kind of but no it, it didn't yeah. flood it just they like threw it into the river and just Hope for the best. I mean, it probably worked out better than, like, a giant explosion happening at the factory. Had all that alcohol eventually caught on fire. So, Uh 
It says the underground pipes poured thousands of liters of burning absinthe into the river, flavoring it for miles downstream, and some claim that the river even had a green or a white tint to it. The fire devastates the factory and completely halts production of absinthe at the Pernod factory, and many competitors kind of slide in at that point. They're Mm -hmm. like, if Pernod isn't producing it, we can produce it. So there are lots of copycat uh, companies that try to get in on this absinthe popularity. Right. However, this is in 1901, and as you mentioned, in about 1905, you know, people are just really, really not wanting absinthe to be as popular as it is, and the temperance movement is forging forward. Right. And the Lafray... Lafray? Lanfray. Lanfray murders are... I think, at least. I I didn't look it up. ...are a giant catalyst for the success in banning absinthe. Right. So, Pernod, prior to this, collects a very large insurance payout. He rebuilds the plant, comes up with the latest technical machinery and fireproofing, which is still used in many distilleries around the world today. And he reopened his factory in 1905, which Mm -hmm. is right at the 100th centennial celebration of Pernod Absinthe. But by 1915, Absinthe is banned throughout much of Europe and the world. All French absinthe distilleries have to close their doors, and Pernod kind of falls into demise and is doing very little. Right. They do try in later years to create an anise-flavored liqueur Mm -hmm. to replace absinthe, but it's not quite as popular as absinthe was. Okay. So the factory itself, as I said, he had built it in 1905 from the ground up with the, the best technology. And once they close their doors, it goes up for sale. And France actually uses it as a field hospital during the First World War. And then when the world when the war ends in 1919... When the world ends? <laughs> yes. <laughs> when the war ends in 1919, a small, a small company that you may have heard of before called Nestle... Uh-huh. Buys the factory. They make great Kit Kats in Canada. <laughs> they do. <laughs> and Nestle is actually still in that factory today. Oh, wow. A hundred years later. So Nestle uses it. Um, originally, they, they made chocolate there, but now I found this really funny. It is primarily the production site of the strawberry and banana Nesquik. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's it? That's like it's big thing? <laughs> that's where they produce strawberry and banana Nesquik. <laughs> Is at the Pernod factory in France. Interesting. Yes. Okay, so in 1932, absinthe is banned in most places in the world. Right. Uh, another company comes to the forefront, and this is the Ricard company, and they create an anise-flavored liqueur, again trying to replicate the flavor of absinthe. And they're quite successful, so now in the 1930s, we've got the Pernod anise flavored liqueur and Ricard anise flavored oh, liqueur. They, they kept making it even though they, not in that factory, they just, yeah, they just I downsized. Guess moved to a smaller, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, but so they are now competitors, these two companies, and they remain in fierce competition until the year 1975 when they decide to join forces. Mm-hmm. And they form the Pernod Ricard company 
which is the company I referenced at the beginning of my story. Right. The second largest spirit and wine company. And they have just grown since 1975 to own all of these companies. And so I wonder if they like acquired all these companies? They did. Okay. Like the first, one of their first acquisitions is actually Jameson. Okay. Or it's Irish Distilling, Mm -hmm. which owned Jameson. Right. So Jameson still runs its own distilleries and has its own label, but like its umbrella big company is this company. Right. And so since banning the absinthe, it's kind of become one of the most misunderstood and controversial drinks in history. And I mean, even I when we picked this topic, was like, is it legal? Yeah. Yeah. It's legal. But, like, no one drinks absinthe. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I've gone to a cocktail bar, and it'll say absinthe, and I'm like, ooh, I know. Absinthe. Like, that drink will get you crazy, <laughs> and it probably, like, really won't, though. But doing research on this, I've realized it's really just another liqueur. It just yeah. has that anise flavor to it. Uh, I think I always think, when I think of absinthe, I think of... Moonshine? Because that's what I kind of think No. Of. Moulin Rouge. Oh. Did you watch... Did, have you watched Moulin Rouge? Years ago. There's like a whole scene with the Green Fairy. Oh, really? Anyway. That's what I always think of. Well, since it is now legal again, it happened, as you said, in the year 2007. In America, we are now able to enjoy absinthe again in many... And it's mostly drink in America in cocktails. Like, yes. as a flavoring to cocktails. Although, I do need to find a place that serves it traditional style because I want to do it. Well, I can take you to that little cafe in France. (laughs) Well, this is actually really interesting. There is an article, or we did a story about New Orleans, and Uh I didn't do the Absinthe House in New Orleans. Oh, yeah. But there is a bar called the Absinthe House, and there's a connection to, I can't remember the pirate's name that I did my story about, but... There is a connection to that pirate and the absinthe house that came up in some of my research. And I was like, how fascinating. You know what's funny is this is the second time you've brought up that episode, I think. Really? Even though we haven't posted. Oh, no, we would have posted it at this point. Yeah, yeah. You guys have heard that episode. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. the thing, We talked about it being hallucinogenic. And Pernod's absinthe is not hallucinogenic they have to take out there there was something in the wormwood that does cause people to hallucinate right but that is no longer legal so they can make it without that however Pernod's absinthe is 136 proof wow so it is not like an easy drink yeah you're not gonna like sip it like a whiskey probably <laughs> probably not <laughs> And in 2013, the Pernod Absinthe actually returned to its original formula. So it is now made using the exact same ingredients as it was in the 1800s, which include anise, grand wormwood, petite wormwood, hyssop, and melissa. And it provides anise, musk, and herbaceous tasting notes. Nice. When you were when you said formula, at first I thought you were gonna say factory, and I was like, they kicked out <laughs> the banana strawberry Nesquik. No, they're actually they're headquartered in France or in Paris. Now. Okay. So, some of my sources today, I used a, a website called the dailyartmagazine.com. Nice. I used the Absinthe Encyclopedia, and then I got a lot of information from a German Absinthe blog. <laughs> okay. Called Alandia. 
And so they had lots of information about the fire at the factory as well as kind of the history of this giant company. Very cool. I guess it translated into English. For yes. You. <laughs> I didn't have to click a button. It was just there oh. in English. Well, that's good. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. Kind of like the history of absinthe. I, when I drank, when I had absinthe, I didn't love it. I think it kind of had like that black licorice taste to me. It does. I don't think I've ever had it, like you said, I think I've, like, seen it on menus at cocktail bars as, like, being in a drink, but I don't know that I've ever ordered, like, it mixed in with other other things because I feel like I didn't like it, so I, like, just kind of avoid it. Right. I have not had absinthe in America. Right. However, there is an equivalent to absinthe in Turkey, and when I went to Turkey, I was there for my birthday, and they took me out and made me drink this licorice-like uh-huh. drink. And it was the same idea when they added water. It turned to, like, a milky. Yeah. So, I, very similar to absinthe. But it's called, um, I think it's called Raki, or Raku. I think it's Raku. Interesting. But it's, like, the Turkish version of absinthe. Well, now I feel like we got we got to find you a true <laughs> absinthe experience. There's, New York's got to have there's, something. They have to. <laughs> One day we will go. Yes. All right, and that was absinthe. Yeah. All you'd ever need to know. Just kidding. Probably there's a lot more about absinthe. There's so much more. (laughs) I feel like it's one of those topics that we will probably revisit someday. Oh, yeah. For sure. So it has come to the time for our bar or cocktail of the week. Yes, we decided to keep it local this week. Mm Mm-hmm. No one's traveling. No one's going anywhere exotic. Nope. So we're just just staying in our own backyard. Yep. And so we're going to talk about a bar. It's called the Bonnie. The Bonnie Bar, I think, specifically. Uh And it's in Astoria in Queens. And we went not too long ago with a couple of other friends and got a few different drinks. Do you want to talk about yours? Because it was cool. It was green. Yeah. So I ordered this drink. And... I'm not sure which part of the cocktail drew me in first. So I'm just going to read the the description or the the ingredients and then we can discuss it. Okay. So first off, it's called the Victory Garden. So there's that. Um, It had teeling Irish whiskey, pamplemousse or grapefruit, (laughs) arugula, singani, lime, orange blossom, and celery bitters. And... Obviously, it was, like, an obscure choice, right? Yeah. Like, there's some the weird stuff. But, like, Victory Garden drew me in as a history teacher. You know, like, the just the title of, like, a Victory Garden and the wars. And so, like, drawn to the name first. And then, as most of you don't know, arugula is my favorite lettuce. Yep, it is. So, I can confirm that. <laughs> so, you're going to put arugula in a liquid form. I am here for that rocket for our british friends yes rocket uh and then just like celery bitters is interesting irish whiskey always good i love grapefruit as previously discussed in our gin episode yeah so really i just saw this cocktail and had to have it and then it was delivered to the table and i don't know why i didn't assume it would be bright green but it was it was bright green it's Uh not just like a Oh, it has a green tint, or it's crushed mint like a mojito. No, this cocktail 
is very green. It's green as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I remember taking a sip of it and, like, thinking of chicken soup. And I think it was the celery. It's not that it tasted like chicken soup, because yeah. that would have been weird, but... It had, like, it, a like, slight savory... Like, it was, like, reminiscent of celery and chicken soup. Yeah. And so I, that night, had a cocktail called Friends to the West, and it had Redwood Empire American Whiskey, Copper and King's Brandy, Honey Brush Tea, Strawberry, some Pomplamousse or Grapefruit as well, some Cinnamon, Lemon, and Blackstrap Bitters. Had a lot of stuff in it, but yeah. I remember it was really delicious. It almost seems like an overwhelming amount of things and like there would be too much flavor, but... It was good. It was really good. Yeah. I, I like the Bonnie. I think that they make a good cocktail. It's just a fun space. It's got, like, a good outdoor space when the weather is nice. They do a decent brunch. hmm You know, it's just, like, all around. It's just a good hangout. It is. Recommended if you're ever in Astoria. Yeah. And that's all we got. We're going to plug our social media again. Be, yeah. be good at that. Be better yes. at it. <laughs> so you can find pictures of our cocktails that we talked about, as well as any pictures from this week's episode on Instagram and Twitter. We are at a tap on the wrist. And we'd love it if you could rate, review, and subscribe. Get your friends to rate, review, and subscribe. Because it it, it really does help the like whole algorithm. I think you can only do it if you're on Apple Podcasts, but... Yeah. So so do that if you have an iPhone. <laughs> Thanks. <Okay. laughs> All right, guys. Cheers. Have a great week. <laughs>